0: David had a desire, right? He he was a man after God's own heart, and he looked around at all these other nations, and he recognized that that the way those nations would, uh, um, bring glory and honor to their deity was by the palace. You remember I told you the the palace was an example of of that deity's um place on earth through the king. Whoever the God was, he was his representative. And then they had this enormous temple, right? Beautiful, gorgeous temples, right? The Philistines had them. Canaanites had them. The Ammonites had them. The Moabites had them. Everybody had them. And David looked around at how they were honoring all these false gods. And he had a desire, right? He had a, he had a, a concept on his heart. And his heart said, man, I want to build God a house. I want to make God a house. And you remember, Nathan the prophet said, hey, go for it, brother. Do whatever's in your heart. I mean, if David said something to you guys, you'd be the same way. I mean, that's a man after God's own heart, of course. He's probably more in tune with what God's doing than, than your average guy. Do it. Go for it. But when Nathan got home, God spoke to him, right? And said, David can't build me a house. He told them why. He said, David's a man of war. And a man of peace is going to build my house. A man of peace. David is a great example and a great uh, shadow or type in scriptures of Jesus Christ um, to a point. But David was a man of blood, right? One of the things we're going to look at now is the aftermath of that takes place. And we talked about it. When David got the word, he didn't get disappointed. He, he actually was blessed because God, not only did God say, you can't build me a house, but I'm going to build you one, and I'm going to bring Messiah through you. So here are the promises we had had so far in the Old Testament about Messiah. Genesis chapter 3 told us that Messiah would be the seed of a woman, right? So it's a virgin birth. Man not needed. Genesis chapter 3. Later on, we discover that that seed through woman is going to come through the family of Abraham, right? Because the Lord said, Abraham, through your seed, singular, all the nations of the world will be blessed, right? The prophecy declaring that Messiah would come through the family of Abraham. Now it's narrowed further. The scripture told us as as, uh, Israel, you remember Israel, the dad? Uh, Jacob was his name that we know him easiest by, Jacob prophesied over all his sons. And he told Judah that through the line of Judah was going to come the Messiah. And now we know that He's going to come through the family of David. Well, that's a kingly line, right? So these things are laid out. David's kind of blown away and blessed by it. But one of the things I want to focus on tonight is David was not so bummed at what he couldn't do that he didn't do anything you ever known situations like that in your life maybe you wanted to do something in particular maybe it was something in ministry maybe maybe it has something to do with music you know i I wanted to play i wanted to do something i wanted to play the drums or i wanted to play the guitar or i wanted to play the bass and but for whatever reason that opportunity to do that got shut down and you were not able to do that to fulfill that desire The the real test for us is, what am I doing next? What do I do next? Have I made the decision then, what I'm going to do next is complain, grumble, and run away? Because that's not what David did. David was told he couldn't be the man, he couldn't build it. But everything he did from that moment until the time he died was preparation for the one who who would build the temple. He didn't complain about what he couldn't do. He did what he could. And that's one of the things that we see on the pages of Scripture as we take a look. First Chronicles, and we'll we'll uh, pick up tonight. I don't remember if we're 18 or 19. I'll tell you in just a sec. We're in 18. So in 18 he said, Now after this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines. Now remember I told you the writer of Chronicles... Uh, It's probably Ezra. And he's writing to the people who are coming back from captivity. So the people who are reading this are guys who are reading like a history book, right? They've already... David was is long gone. Rehoboam's long gone. All the bad kings are long gone. They went into Babylon. 70 years in Babylon. They're coming out. They're struggling with the idea why are we rebuilding? Why are we putting this nation back together? And so Ezra... He writes out their history for them in an effort that they would learn from the mistakes of those who have gone before them and to teach them very specific lessons about how God delivers and how God moves and works through his people. We had said that David was a man of war and a man of blood, and so he's going to he's going to build on that concept in the next 3 chapters. He's going to talk all about David's conquests. David's kind of a dichotomy guys, David is a worshiper who wrote incredible psalms, uh, incredible poetry, right? Incredible things that he penned. And at the same time, he was a warrior. Those two things don't go together, right? I mean, except in the movies when, you know, in Braveheart he says, they were warrior poets. You know, great, that's nice. It works good in movies, but in real life that never happens. Seldom happens. But this is who David was, and these are his battles, and so it begins... I'm taking a look at David as a man of war. God's man. He is God's man, but he is a man of war. He's God's man for this time. Remember, the Lord told him when they came into the land of Canaan to subdue it. But it has not been subdued until the time of David. David is going to subdue it. and Because David subdues the land, his son experiences peace. Right? Solomon has peace all the days. Because his dad... He fought all the wars. He fought the battles. So he says in 18, He attacked the Philistines, subdued them, took Gath and its towns from the hand of the Philistines. Then he defeated Moab, and the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. And David defeated Hadadezer, king of Zobah, as far as Hamath, as he went to establish his power by the river Euphrates. So I want you to understand, Israel's bigger then than it is now. You guys know the river Euphrates is like in the middle of Iraq, right? That's a long ways from the border of Israel today. But he's establishing his his power. People are trying to push toward David. David's pushing back. Uh, it says that the, in the end of the battle in verse 4, David took from him 1,000 chariots, 7,000 horsemen. 20,000 foot soldiers. Then you have this neat little excerpt. Days David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he sp- he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. does that seem weird to you guys? Well, it would be like this. We go out and fought a battle, and you won, and the enemy had all these tanks. And you went and blew up all the tanks. Well, you kept a hundred for yourself, but there were thousands, and you destroyed them. I mean, wouldn't it seem better to take those tanks and use them? You know, make them a part of your army? Utilize them for for what you were doing? But you remember David was kind of in touch with what God was doing and how God was moving. Psalm uh, 20, David said, Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. I trust in the Lord. One of the things God had told his kings, which David is not perfectly obedient in, but what did he tell him? He said, don't multiply horses. I want you to understand, it's not because there's something wrong with horses. What were the horses in that day? They're the tanks. That's the war. That's the war machine. Right? You get it? If you're standing there with a, a spear and a stick, and somebody's running at you at a horse, you are at a disadvantage. Agreed? And if they got a chariot... That's like a tank. But God said, don't multiply horses, because you'll put your trust in horses. He said, don't multiply gold, because you'll put your trust where? In gold. I know. And He said, don't put your trust, or don't multiply wives, because the woman will turn your heart from the Lord. So these are the things that the Lord had laid out. This is at least one area where David's being fairly obedient, right he's not he, he keeps a hundred, but he hamstrings the rest, not two reasons. so the bad guys couldn't use them against him and maybe so he's not going to be tempted to use them at a later date. So he he fulfills that concept. I'm going to trust in the Lord. I don't need might, I don't need power. How is the battle won? by my spirit, saith the Lord. God wants us to win it in His Spirit, through His Spirit. And so David has that same heart. In verse 5 it says, So when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Now, whenever we go and as we work our way through, one of the challenging things that you'll see, you know, we hear... um, We remember the song, right? Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. One of the things we have to understand is the leader of the army or the leader of the country was attributed with all the deaths. This doesn't mean David went out and killed 22,000 guys. It means that David, as he led the army, defeated an army this big. And that victory is attributed to David and David would attribute those victories to the Lord, to his hand being with him. So it says they, they killed 22,000 of the Syrians, and David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus. Isn't it interesting? Is Syria in the news today? Any news on Syria? You guys haven't seen anything, have you? <laughs> Syria, it's kind of interesting, because there's a lot of interesting players that are, are, whose pieces are at the table now. Pretty interesting, especially if you're a follower of prophecy. Um, you could be looking at the beginning of Gog Magog from Ezekiel. Um, anytime things like this happen in the Middle East, it's dicey, right? Bible talks a lot about this. Jesus said there would be wars and rumors of wars. Isn't it interesting? We're reading First Chronicles 18, and they were fighting Syria back then. No shock, right? No shock. Still the same enemies around them that were then around them in those days. The same desire as it was in those days. Their destruction. But here we see David being victorious, putting garrisons in Syria, uh, Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. What's it say? So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. That's a phrase you're going to hear over and over again in the next couple of chapters. What's the point? God's the one who delivered. didn't have anything to do with the horses. didn't have anything to do with with something that David did or didn't do. It had everything to do with God moving and working and David responding to the Holy Spirit and the direction of the Holy Spirit. Now in verse 7 it says, "...and David took shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem." These shields are going to become part of what's going to be used in the building of the temple. This is part of the treasure trove, if you will, that David amasses for Solomon so that Solomon can use it to build the temple. He's doing what he can. He can't build it, but God didn't say you couldn't gather all the, the, the wood and gather the stone and gather the gold and gather the things that could be used in the building. Verse 8, it says... Also from Tibhath and from Chun, cities of Hadadezer, David brought a large amount of bronze. What for? Which Solomon made the bronze sea, the pillars, and the articles of bronze. So see what I'm saying. David's gathering together the things that his son's going to later on use. Still years and years down the line. But he's gathering it together. I can't build the house, but I can support it. I can't build the house, but I can be a part of it. Is that our attitude when God tells us no? When a door closes, an opportunity uh, takes a right turn instead of a left turn. And and is our attitude one of, well, how can I be a support? Or is our attitude, you know, well, I just need to go someplace else where they recognize my gifts. Because David's attitude was, I'm going to be a part of supporting I can't be the guy to do it, but I'm going to help those who can. And that was that was the attitude. I think that's the attitude the Lord wants us to have. It says, Now when Tau, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, king of Zobah, he sent Hadaram, his son, to king David to greet him and bless him, because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. <clears throat> For Hadadezer had been at war with Tau. And Hadaram brought with him all kinds of articles of gold, silver, and bronze. So Tal, he sees David is untouchable, really. And he says, I'm not fighting. Ah, uh, okay, we'll be your servants. Here's here's a bunch of gold and silver. You know, we'll pay tribute to you. We're, we don't want to fight. We want peace. So they... They came and offered peace. King David also dedicated these to the Lord. David didn't put them in his treasury. David didn't put them in his wallet. David didn't take some of it for building his house or the things that was his. He took it and he set it aside for the Lord. This is God's. This is for the temple. This is for the building of the temple that Solomon is going to do. So he dedicated these things to the Lord. Along with the silver and the gold that He brought from all these nations, from Edom and Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, and from Amalek. So He's gathering it all together and He is making sure that everything is there for them to be able to do the temple. He is going to be a part of what He can be a part of. Verse 12, again, uh, again, we have this same kind of a concept. It says, Moreover, Abishai... The son of Zariah killed 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt, And he put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became David's servants. What I want you to, to realize is Samuel says that David killed 18,000. Now some people will point to it and say there's a, there's a, a contradiction. There's not a contradiction if you understand how they, how they counted the victories in those days. Abishai is David's general. David's general led his men and defeated the Edomites. So Abishai is given credit for winning the battle. But David is the king. So whether David will get credit for what his generals do, his generals will get credit for what his men do. It's really the same today. Right? Have you spent any time in the military? Have you ever won a battle? Trust me, nobody is sending letters home saying, no, Jackie won a battle. No. They're not going to mention me. Who are they going to talk about? General Colin Powell. General Colin Powell, just so you guys know, did not fire one shot downrange, right? You get that? He sits in a room where the war is on a screen, and he says, okay, these guys go here, these guys go here, right? But he's credited with the victory. And ultimately, not only General... Colin Powell, but who, who then above him? President of the United States, right? So it's the same concept that we have here in the Scriptures. Abishai is the general. Abishai is Joab's brother and a cousin of David. He's also the general of his... Abishai is, is one of the really unique guys you'll see in Scripture. He's always with David. Every time we turn around, Abishai and David have some really unique conversations. And, and we'll have some time to talk about those a little later. But And then at the end of verse 13, And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. They, that the Ezra is letting the people know who are coming out of captivity, God gave the victory. God raised up the man. The man responded to the Holy Spirit. The man was obedient to the Lord's leading. And God preserved him. God was with him. God gave the victory. And he wants the people who are knowing, who are, who are having a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other hand, just trying to build a home again. Fighting the enemies and are thinking, what is the point? This is hopeless. He wants them to know. It's God who preserves. It's the Lord who will give you the victory. It's God who's telling us to come back to the land. To rebuild, to start again, to get things back on track. And he wants them to know that by studying David. In verse 14, it talks about David's cabinet. So David reigned over all Israel and administered judgment and justice to all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. Joab is going to be the the general over all his armies, but he is not one of his mightiest three. He's in the top 30. You know, remember when we talked about David's mighty men? But he's not in the top three joab had a problem joab's problem was he struggled with being obedient to what his king or what the lord was asking him to do if it didn't make sense in joab's head joab wouldn't do it if it made sense in joab's head he would do it sometimes joab does great and incredible things because he's being obedient to what god's saying other times joab does horrible things commits horrible sins, murder, and, and the like. Because he doesn't understand why God would do it this way, or why God would move that way. So he doesn't uh, want to be obedient to what God's doing in that in that way. So Joab's got issues, but he's the general. He's the main head of the army, Joab. Jehoshaphat, the son of Alehud, was the recorder. This is the secretary. Uh, keeping track, writing the histories. Then you have Zadok, the son of Ahitab, and Abimelech, the son of Abiathar. These are the priests. They are the priests uh, of David. Then you have Shavsha, who's the scribe. He's the scribe, writing the Scriptures, laying out the Scriptures. Then you have Beniah Beniah is going to become Solomon's right-hand man. Beniah the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. You see those two names? Cherethites and the Pelethites. Who cares about them? Cherethites and the Pelethites were Philistines. Remember when Saul was after David? And David was constantly hiding from him in the caves and in the hills? And then at one point he defects to Philistine. Remember? And if the Philistine generals hadn't made such a fuss about David being there, David would have been in the battle in which Saul and Jonathan were killed. I think God supernaturally stops David from being in that place. And so the, the that battle takes place. David hangs out in Gath for a while. Then he, he moves off and comes back over into Israel. When he does so, because of who David was, the man he was, a man after God's own heart, the attitude that he had, the Cherethites and the, and the Pelethites followed him. They were a special group of people. Um, if you want to put them into a certain category, let me tell you, put them in this category. They were the CIA. They were the black ops guys. They were David's personal guard. They were the. They were the it. They were the guys. Benny IA is so trusted. That he does it and runs these Philistine guys who who, who started in Philistia, but then they follow David. As a result, they're they're really not Philistines at all, but that's where they started. They started in that area, they end up serving David all their days. You know the last time you hear about them? When David dies. And they're just gone. But up until that time, they are his personal guard. The black ops guys, the, the, the guys given the special tasks. And David's sons were chief ministers at the king's side. So chapter 18 tells us about his victories. The battles he won, the cabinet that he put together. And reminds us all the way through, God was with him and gave him the victories. God was with him and gave him the victories. In chapter 19... It says, and it happened after this, that Nahash, the king of the people of Ammon, died and his son reigned in his place. Interesting, just side note, Nahash means serpent. Serpent. His name means serpent. And he died. He's an Ammonite. The Ammonites were traditional enemies against uh, the Israelites. Do you remember where the Ammonites came from? They came from a little story. There's this guy that, that... that Abraham took with him his nephew. Remember him? His name's Lot. And Lot moved to a land that was known for its sin. It was called. Do you guys remember Sodom and Gomorrah? And so God was bringing judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. And an angel came and told Lot, "You need to get out of here because God's bringing judgment. He's not going to bring the judgment until you get out." We remember. And, and Lot actually ham and hawed about it so much that the angel has to lay a hold of him and drag him out of the city. Lot's wife comes and his two daughters. Lot's wife has a particular problem. Do you guys remember what her particular problem was? She did not want to go. She didn't want to go. There's a lot of stuff that is being left behind there. She had grandkids. She had other sons and other daughters in the city. And she turned back to go back. Something the the angel said, don't. Jesus said the same thing. No man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. She looked back. Scripture tells us what happened, right? What happened? Pillar of Saul. So then Lot and his two daughters, they asked if they can go to this little town called Zoar. Finally the angel's like fine, whatever, get there. Well, when they start to head over to Zoar, they're so freaked out that they just run into the mountains and they hide in the mountains, and they're so sure that the world is about to end, that Lot's two daughters get him drunk. He sleeps with each of them, and they each bear children. And one of those was the father of the Ammonites and the other you remember so we have two traditional enemies of god that right that come through this incestuous weird twisted thing that happens do the things we do the sins that we commit that they have a ripple effect into the future or does it just affect us what do you think we don't live in a vacuum right we don't live in a vacuum the choices we make the sins we commit we it's funny because sometimes today people say things like oh it's not a big deal god will forgive me right you guys ever heard that before but there's really no place in the scripture where where god takes that tone with us oh don't worry about your sin i I got you now when we're repentant he has that tone right what first john 1 9 what's it say If I confess my sins, what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? But what's that predicated on? A confession of sin, right? Not a profession of I can live any way I want. That's not the same thing, is it? So, interesting, some of those ideas that our sin doesn't have a ripple effect it only affects me that it doesn't really matter to anybody else what's the big deal but it affects the whole world we don't live in a vacuum one person's sin one part of the world in a remote cave affected people all the way through time through the nation of israel so it's interesting for me as we see those things kind of come to light well the king of the ammonites dies the king of the Ammonites, Nahash. And it says, David said, I will show kindness to Hanum, the son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. Now that's strange because the Ammonites are enemies. But if we go back into history, here's what we learn. You guys remember when Saul was first king and he wasn't really sure how to be a king and he went back home and just was plowing his field. And, and, uh, you know, he was, uh, he was humble back then. He wasn't so full of himself. And Jabesh-Gilead gets attacked. They get attacked by the Ammonites, specifically by a king named Nahash. The Jabesh-Gilead sends out a call to help. Help, help, what are we going to do? Saul, hearing it, rallies the nation of Israel around him, and he delivers the men of Jabesh-Gilead. You guys remember the story? It's the first battle Saul ever had. Well nahash becomes a traditional enemy of saul can you think of any other enemies of saul one of them is one of the guys we're reading about right now. now david served saul for a long time but at some point saul wanted to kill david right and david was running around hiding places so some think maybe nahash and david maybe nahash hid david a couple times maybe nahash opened up the, 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 the country of Ammon and, and let him hide there. We're not certain, but we do know we're looking for things that Nahash and David have in common. Because David said, he showed me a kindness. Right? David said, Nahash did something for me. So possibly possibly because they were, were both enemies of Saul, there's a possibility that in that uh, Nahash did something for him. It also could be a result of a treaty. The Bible tells in 2 Samuel chapter 10 that, uh, that David got a treaty with Ammon and it, and it went through Nahash. And so maybe it's because of the treaty, uh, with Nahash. So when Nahash dies, David wants to do something to show his, uh, condolences to Nahash's son. Trying to keep up, um, you know, relations between the two countries. So he puts together a a group of guys, it says. So David sent messengers to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came to Hanan in the land of the people of Ammon to comfort him. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Did his servants not come to you to search and to overthrow and to spy out the land? Therefore Hanan took David's servants, shaved them, cut off their garments in the middle at the buttocks, and sent them away. So what this means, they shaved them, shaved them bald, shaved his hair, shaved the ringlets uh, for, the, for the Jews that they'd have on the side, shaved their beards. Bible tells they shaved half. So they got half a beard and half not a beard. It was a, a huge disgrace to the people of their time. The other thing He did is He he made them leave naked. He cut off their their robes and their clothes and He sent them out naked. We read about these kind of things happening in Isaiah. In Isaiah uh, chapter 20, um, Isaiah talks about a, a similar instance that takes place. Um. Remember, we talked about the Assyrians and some of the things uh, that the Assyrians would do. Isaiah 20. So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. So the idea is that they would give them... They could wear their shirt, but they went out naked from the shirt down. Pretty embarrassing, wouldn't it be? To have to walk all the way home from Ammon (laughs) with no britches. And and just in case you're thinking, "Um, well, I'll just take some more out of my suitcase. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) You don't get that either. You get sent out. And then you're you're too embarrassed to want to go through a lot of towns that way so you tend to sh- to stay around the town so they the scripture tells us they got word to David it says then some went and told David about the men and he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed so he got word the men got word to him and David sent guys to cover he sent guys to to cover their shame he sent guys with clothes. He sent guys to clothe them. And he told them, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. He said, basically, he said, you guys take a vacation. You're at Jericho right now. Just, just hang out in Jericho. Take some time off. Let your beards grow back. Let the sting of, of the insult that uh, has come upon you wear off. And so he leaves them there. So when the people of Ammon saw, That they had made themselves repulsive to David. So David's hot. When it says they made him repulsive to David, David is mad. Now of all the guys in the Middle East at that time, David was the one that you did not want to upset. But they had upset him, so they made themselves repulsive. So there's a couple of choices, right? You've made yourself repulsive to somebody, we can ask forgiveness, you know... Uh, uh apologize pay whatever tribute you need to pay I don't know what would happen they had that choice or rather than doing that you could do what they did it says so Hanan and the people of Ammon sent a thousand talents of silver to hire for themselves chariots and horsemen from Mesopotamia from Syrian Ma'akah and from Zobah so what they do they bought themselves a mercenary army They, with, uh, uh, what did it lay out for us? A thousand talents, right? Each talent is 75 pounds. So, 75,000 pounds of silver. They bought an army to go do battle against David. They're gonna go do battle. They're gonna go fight. So they hired them for themselves. 32,000 chariots. And the king of Ma'akah and his people who came, And they encamped before Medeba. Now Medeba is uh, in Jordan today. It's just about 19 miles outside of uh, Ammon, Jordan. Ammon. So just uh, about 19 miles outside of it. So it says, Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army, what's that next phrase? Of the mighty men. So if you remember when we were reading the stories about the incredible heroes in David's army, when it says he sent Joab with all the army and all the mighty men, that he got them all. All 300, 600, whatever the, the final number of it. The best of the best of the best that he had, he sent. He's going to go deal with this threat to the to the nation. And so the people of Ammon, they came out and put themselves in battle array before the gate of the city. And the kings who had come were by themselves in the field. So when Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother. And they set themselves in battle array against the people of Ammon. So you have two brothers here, leading two parts of the army against uh, uh, divided forces. And I think there's kind of a... A a neat little concept here that hopefully we can develop as well. And so he said to him, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will help you. Now, what's that got to do with us? Well, let's see. Two brothers, common enemy. And they decide we're going to focus on the enemy instead of arguing with each other. That kind of a new concept. Two brothers, common enemy. If I need help, you come help me. If you need help, I'll come help you. That's the way brothers are supposed to deal. Well, what about for us? Do we have brothers? What is the church? Is the church this building? The word uh, ecclesia—it's the—it's the people. It has nothing to do with the building. Or place. So if the church is people, and the, what we see the people calling one another in the church in the book of Acts, they called each other brothers and sisters, right? So if the church in Jerusalem needed help, they could rely on the church at Antioch to provide it, couldn't they? And vice versa, if the church at Antioch got in trouble, they could rely on the, the church at Jerusalem to help right to be a help why because we have a con- common enemy don't we the enemy is not the baptists or the methodists or the pentecostals or the baptocostals or the anybody in betweens the enemy is the devil the head of the church is jesus christ And as brothers, we ought to be able to work together. The sad reality is that doesn't happen very often. It's actually a rather difficult process. Because people get uptight about different things. Who's going to get the credit? Well, where are the people going to go? If we come together and we do an outreach, and people get saved, which church are they going to join? Man, I don't care. Let them go where they want to go. Let's let's work together. That's what I see in Joab and Abishai. Hey, if you're in trouble, I'll help you. If I'm in trouble, you help me. That's how they function. That's how we see them working. And listen to what they say. So be of good courage. And let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in His sight. You know what I like about this is, Joab and Abishai was probably a little more in tune with the things of god than joab but joab here joab is on the threshold of battle he's like i'm gonna go over here and fight these guys you go over there and fight those guys and then he says this and god let god do whatever right in his sight we'll go fight we'll go fight and and let god sort it out david said go we're gonna go so they went out they did battle and it was short It was the lamest 75,000 pounds of silver anybody ever spent for an army. Because it's... Look at it. It's So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Syrians and they fled. Oh, that's not so good. And when the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they fled. So this is short. You get it? They run in to do battle and the Syrians run. And then Abishai goes at the Ammonites and they run. So everybody's running, everybody's hiding, everybody's taking off, and all that really was accomplished was the Ammonites figured out how to weigh 75,000 pounds of silver to fight a battle that nobody was really ever going to fight anyway. It's just about how silly it is to do battle against God in the first place. To do battle against the things that God's doing and the ways that God's moving But this is what we see them doing. So it says, So Joab and the people who were with him drew near, and they flee. And the people of Ammon saw the Syrians, and they flee before Abishai, his brother. So Joab went to Jerusalem. Huh. Okay. So they go and flee. Battle's over. No real fight. Joab goes back home. Now when the Syrians saw that they'd been defeated by Israel, they sent messengers and brought the Syrians who were beyond the river Shapach and the commander of Hadadezer's army went before them. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, came upon them, set up in battle array against them. So when David had set up the battle array against the Syrians, they fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel and David killed 7,000 chariots, 40,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians and killed Shapach, the commander of the army." So they still, they fled. They didn't fight. They saw the everything. They called one more guy, one more commander from Syria, and he came to do battle. David went out and and beat him. But it's futile. Doesn't it seem dumb? Does it only seem dumb to me? It seems dumb to me. It seems dumb to me what's going on. Hold your place here and turn to the right. Because every time I think about how dumb... This is, I am reminded of a psalm. You don't have to go very deep into the psalms to find how dumb this is. You find it in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. Against the Lord and against His anointed. Well, same thing's happening, right? Who is God's anointed at the time that we're studying? David. Is David not God's anointed at the time? He's God's anointed. He's he's the king. They're, everywhere they look, people are trying to fight. How's that working out? Not so good. David is God's anointed. He is going to uh, seal off all the lands of Canaan and unite all of Israel and turn it over to a peaceful time under his son. And his son will reign Solomon until he turns over to his son and then they'll let it all fall apart. That's how it's going going to work. But in Psalm 2, it says these rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, is that only talking about David? No, Psalm 2 is a psalm about Jesus Christ. It's about why do the nations rage? Why are they constantly doing battle against Him? In the end of days, you're going to see it. Revelation chapter 19, all the armies of the world trying to do battle against Jesus Christ. By the way, He's not going to need our help, or the angels' help, or anybody else's help. He's going to deal with them all by Himself. Scripture declares He's going to pass right through the midst of them. And they'll see this man walking from Basra, that looks, and, and the Scripture tells us that it looks as though he'd been stomping grapes. And they'll say, what have you been doing? And he'll say, trampling the grapes of wrath. Alone. And he passed through the Jezreel Valley, and the blood flowed to the horse's bridle. Well, it's not much of a battle, just so you know. That's why it says, why do the nations rage? Why are they fighting? Don't they know their maker? Can you really do battle against your creator? The Bible tells in the book of Colossians that in him, in Christ, all things consist. So that means what holds the whole thing together, all of creation, is held together by the word of Jesus' power. So when the Bible says that He returns and His tongue is like a two-edged sword, it is because He doesn't need to carry a sword. He's not going to have to fight. He just speaks the Word and everything that holds you together lets go. And the armies are just destroyed. And God's not saying, He's not telling them this because He's glorying in the destruction of His enemy. The Bible says he has no glory in the destruction of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his rebellious ways and live. God tells us the end from the beginning. Let us break their bonds in pieces, cast away their cords. And so he who sits in heaven will laugh. Here's the enemy saying, God's not going to rule over us. Who's he to call the shots? Why should God be in charge of anything? We'll break their cords. We'll be free the last great act of defiance. He who sits in the heavens will laugh. The Lord will hold them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and, his, and distress them in His deep pleasure. And say, yet I have set my King on my holy hill of Zion and I will declare a decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give the nations for your inheritance. And the ends of the earth for your possession, and you will break them with a rod of iron, and you will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This is God saying what's going to happen. But listen now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Don't be stupid. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. What's it say? Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. For blessed are those who put their trust in him. God says, this is what will happen if you do battle against the Lord. This is what happens. They're dashed to pieces. So God says, be instructed. Be wise. Listen to what I'm saying. Two paths before every man, right? One leads to destruction. One leads to life. The Lord says, choose life. Why should you choose death? Why should you be obliterated? Why should you be wiped out? Be instructed. But you know, one of the saddest verses in the book of Revelation. And yet, they would not repent and give God glory no matter what happened to them, they wouldn't change. They're so caught up in their sin, they say they finally would ultimately choose that. I will have my sin, my life, my way. I don't care what God says. I don't care what God wants. I don't care. And they're utterly lost. And there are people today who run around the same way. Only they may... Deceive themselves for a while here and say, "Well, it's okay. God's going to forgive me anyway. Doesn't matter how I live, does it? God loves me no matter what." I don't, probably have just a little bit of problem with that theology. That theology for someone who says, "I love the Lord." and I struggle I think it works yeah God's love is not ever going to fail and will not ever run out on you but the person who sins willfully the Bible says there's no sacrifice for willful sin by the way that's in the New Testament there's no sacrifice for sinning with a high hand for just living a life of sin and saying well God will forgive me there's forgiveness for the life that says I'm a sinner Lord forgive me you, do you guys see the difference because not everybody gets it and they just run around and continue to stay in in, in uh, sinful lifestyle and never repent never turn never, never recognize what it is that, that God is doing and working in them he wants them to come to him that's why he wrote Psalm 2. It says, And when the servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with David and became his servants. So the Syrians were not willing to help the people of Ammon anymore. Oh. It's too bad they didn't learn that before 75,000 pounds of silver. Right? Before amassing three different armies. Before how many people die? Before all this countless effort to buck against God, the reason Ezra is laying this out for the people coming into the land is because they got a hard road in front of them. Man, there's no Jerusalem. Jerusalem was plowed under. Their houses are gone, but their enemies are everywhere. And as soon as they start to start to build or plant something, their enemies come in and tear it all up. And they're disheartened. And they're trying to figure out why we do this. Why do we want to be this? Why do we want to, if God, why is God calling us to this road? not easy. Have you experienced sometimes that the road God calls you to walk is not an easy one? But, it's worth it. It's worth it. There's a Deliverer coming, Ezra would tell the people. He'll be just like David. He'll deliver us. At the time of Christ, people were so hungry for a Deliverer, they were looking for deliverance all over the place. Everywhere, under every rock, they were waiting for a Deliverer when Jesus came. When Jesus left, He said, If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again so that I might bring you unto myself. Why does he tell us that? He says, Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am coming back. Do you know all around the world today people are looking for a deliverer? Do you know that Muslims are dreaming about Jesus and getting saved? Do you know that crazy miracles are happening in places you wouldn't even begin to imagine? Do you know that people are looking for a deliverer under every rock and behind every politician? They're looking for that person who's going to come? We find ourselves in that place again. Jesus said, don't be deceived. I came in my Father's name. He wouldn't receive me. Another's going to come in his own name. And him they will receive. We turn our eyes away from the Lord God and we are open for being deceived. Folks, the world is looking for that last great act of deception. And it will come. But I am listening. Yeah, I'm listening for trumpets. I'm listening for Jesus saying, Hey, 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 come home. But until that time, did he give me a job to do? He did make disciples, teach them, train them up, and send them out to do the same thing. And so we, like the people Ezra wrote Chronicles to, we got a job to do. God's called us to something. It's not always going to be easy, but it will definitely be worth it.